You're listening to the Handmade CEO Podcast. My name is Maria Lauren, small business owner and creative entrepreneur. Each week, we'll discover the steps and motivation that inspire our guests to create income from their skills. Get ready to start learning how to creatively pursue your dream job by crafting it yourself. Thank you for tuning in to episode 92. I'm going on a limb here, but I'm guessing that we've all experienced an amazing working environment, and then we've had those that have made us want to run for the hills. Today's guest is sharing the secrets to creating a culture in your business that fosters belonging, value, and commitment. Hi, Dr. Troy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, you're welcome. I appreciate you uh, allowing me into your space. This is awesome. Absolutely. So I would love to start with these seven interesting things that we might not know about you. Okay. Well, this is great. You know, anyone can read a bio, right? So that you'll get, and typically your bio has more professional sort of information into it. So I like to sort of begin with a little personal interaction because certainly as we work today in all businesses, regardless of the size, it is our relationship with people that makes a difference because it's people that helps us get things done. It isn't things that get things done. So with that said, I first of all start out with the fact that I married my high school sweetheart in 1977. We have two children and six grandchildren. Uh, Vicky and I have traveled uh, quite a bit. And so one of the, the uh, fun things to tell you is that I kissed the Blarney Stone at Cork Castle in Ireland. What was really cool about that is, first of all, I've sort of, I'm filled with the Blarney. And so I said to my wife, uh, as we were getting ready to do this venture, I go, honey, do you think that I'm going to, you think I'm going to lose the Blarney? Because if I kiss the stone, will it counteract what I already have? And um, so after the event and um, the day goes on and she says to me carefully, no, your rhetoric is still in place. You still have all the Blarney and maybe more. So that was a fun little thing. Uh, I rode a camel in the Middle East, an elephant in Asia, and a hot air balloon in Africa. And the difference between elephants in Asia and elephants in Africa are the size of their ears. And that's what makes a difference. And of course, the Asian elephants are much easier to ride than those that are in Africa. I fed a koala bear and actually petted the koala bear, which is uh, an endangered species in Australia. And so you have to get special permission from the parks to be able to do that. And we barely outran a kangaroo while we were there. We had an an excursion that included an outdoor picnic and the kangaroos were all around us. And I think that one time they thought maybe we were um, into their territory. I shopped at a water mall in Thailand. I was chased by an albino peacock in France. I actually have the photos to prove that. And I will say it's a little contradictory. It's like an oxymoron to call it an albino peacock, given the fact that it is, but it was a white bird and it was a peacock and it did chase me. I have ziplined through the trees in the Caribbean and I've traveled to 45 states, over six countries and have been on six continents. Wow, that's amazing. You've been busy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I've been busy. It's like, oh my goodness, but it's been a fun adventure and traveling has always been an important part of me because I learned so much about the cultures and the people in the different places that I am and it just really enhances the work that I do and I'm excited about that because I get an opportunity to talk to companies not only here in the United States but around the world regarding the culture of their organization and how important that culture is because 
without the culture being set correctly in an organization, uh, regardless of the size of the company, you have problems. And so right. you, you have to have this culture that actually works. And so part of my work is creating, helping organizations create a cohesion culture. And a cohesion culture is a work environment where people have a sense of belonging, are valued, and share in mutual commitments. Do you find that in this niche, it's different if you're working with companies in the United States as opposed to other areas? Because I imagine that maybe values are a little bit different or maybe perspectives um, as an employee or as a business owner. I was just wondering if there's any variances there or if maybe there is just an underlying similarity. Well, first of all, the good news is, is that cohesion is works in every culture. So the idea for people to collectively work together to accomplish things, that is always going to be the same regardless of which culture you're in. How you create belonging, how you establish value, and then how you have others participate in mutual commitments will vary from culture to culture. So that's the part that's a little bit different. And one of the things that I I talk with leaders about, especially in the United States, I think we have a little bit more of an issue or problem here, is to make sure that we don't speak from a position of cultural superiority. And that can really impact what you're doing, especially if you have multicultural teams where you have individuals who work in different parts of the world and they, they all connect. So it's important for that. And what I teach or what I try to encourage the leaders to have is something more of what we call cultural relativism. When you treat yourself as though you know everything, as though everything that you do and say is the very best, and that you create that value system that you have, and you you then apply that value system as judgment into everything else that you view from another culture, then you actually participate in something we call ethnocentric thinking. And to avoid that, you must adopt a more teachable mindset. You must have a mindset that's more purposeful driven, and you have to have a mindset that could possibly really create something I call influence thinking. And in cultural relativism, what it basically means is that you will evaluate the cultures, traditions, rituals, habits of the culture based on the context of the culture. To give you just a quick example of what that means, when I was teaching the students at De La Salle University in Manila on a leadership program, I asked the question, how many of you think you are leaders? And no one raised their hand. I asked that same question in the United States, United Kingdom, Canada, and the students will invariably all raise their hands. And the difference is that in the Asian community, they believe that they need more certification, that it is a rite of passage, that they have to get everything handled first, more like handle it more perfectly to be able to to do it. Whereas in the United States specifically, individuals will say, no, I'm a leader, recognizing that there's still a work in progress and they're okay and comfortable with that. And if you looked at those two items and you said, well, the folks in Asia obviously aren't committed, those students are not going to be as aggressive or progressive in their roles than those in the United States, you would be mistaken. Because it doesn't mean that they don't take on the leadership responsibilities. They just can't claim it in their own minds to be the leader until they have received some sort of formal certification. Whereas in the US, uh, we claim being a leader and then we don't necessarily do the right thing. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. That's such an interesting difference between the two cultures. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems so important too, now that we are extending our reach with the internet and being able to hire a virtual assistant through Fiverr or with Upwork or Mm -hmm. other platforms, it does seem like our reach is so much bigger now. And I imagine that the value of the relationship is so dependent on the quality of your conversations. Absolutely. And it really is what's important to think about there is that the fact that when the leader in embraces the opportunity for virtual or remote work as an option. 
right? Not necessarily as an alternative and not as the only. But when they embrace that, what they've done is they have blown away the four walls of geography that typically bound them to only finding recruits that were in their local market. Now they can find recruits around the world who will contribute to their organizations. And it's real important for an organization to really be thinking in that way, like really blowing their mind, you know, to to go, wow, we could go beyond the geography of my local city where I live, where I may have the headquarters. And normally I only hire people who could actually come into the headquarters. And now you can select talent yes. from all over the world that can contribute to your organization as long as you have put in um, a, a remote or a virtual uh, platform to uh, do the work. Exactly. Well, as a small business owner, I find that once you find a good employee, the hardest thing to picture is them leaving. So can you give us some tips on what makes a good working relationship? Absolutely. So the first thing that I uh, work with leaders on is making sure that their mindset is right. And part of that is talking to them about attributes of an effective leader of cohesion. So I have seven of them. The first is to be teachable. And this really begins the process to embody the other six. That first of all, these attributes are dynamic. They're not chronological. You don't just get to checkbox them off and then you're done. They actually are interacting all the time. It's very dynamic interaction. The leader has to be right first before others can follow. If not, then they'll be following something that may not necessarily be well put together. So that's why we focus on the leader first and the leadership team. And we talk about teachability and how that mind needs to be open to new information and new ideas, much like the way I discussed the cultural difference between cultural superiority and and cultural relativism. And in that uh, mindset of being teachable and why that's also important is uh, Peter Senge uh, did work in the 1990s about a learning organization. And one of his elements of that learning organization is that is diversity, where today our conversation of diversity may be more in the realm of cultural age, uh, what's you know current today. When he was talking about it, he was talking about diversity of thought. And that was uh, relying on individuals within the organization to be the level of experts that they are and to bring that group together so that the sum of them together was greater than their individual parts. And that's the same for the attributes. And when the leader is teachable, then they'll embody these other six attributes, such as showing compassion, extending grace. When you extend grace, to someone, it is the unmerited favor that you give to someone whether they deserved it or not. It's simply because you say you can and you do. Seeking the truth is the fourth characteristic. The fifth is humility. Then there comes the purity of intentions. And lastly is making peace. And looking at all those items together really kind of create that framework that you need to have for the leader first. When the leader is is in that mode and has adopted those seven attributes, then they have moved from what I refer to as a transactional leader to a leader of transformation. Leader of transformation is one who focuses on the needs of others and starts there as their primary area of concern. You find that more common in cultures that have a collective culture or collective mindset. You might see that again in those Asian communities. Germany is another example of a collective mindset. Whereas here in the United States, we're much more individualistic. So we have some natural tendencies to fight against. We also have a ton of media that tends to bombard our minds and influence our thinking that says that we have to first think about us before we can think of someone else. We are seeing a shift though in the general marketplace where people are now making uh, better product and, and services solutions based on the organization's involvement in the community, social responsibility. And that that's also very helpful. So again, 
again, embodying all those characteristics then allow that leader to really say, what are the values of this organization? And then can I recruit and gain talent? Uh, Can I acquire talent that shares in these values? And when that begins to align, then the belief systems of the organization start to manifest themselves. And your beliefs are built from your core values. Things that you really fundamentally say, I believe in, is all sorted from some sort of value. It could be the value of what you recognize to be the truth. Uh, What source do you use for the truth? Do you use uh, a book, a teaching? Do you use your own, you know, personal experience? What is it that you are saying is your truth that begins to, to ground some of those initial values? So our belief system is built from our values, the attitudes that we express, you know, positive, negative attitudes, how we uh, feel about something, uh, how we feel about it is in that emotional area is more of an attitude. It's not a belief, it's a feeling. And then all of that works together. Values, beliefs, and attitudes form our behaviors. And when the leader can adopt behaviors that others want to follow, then you know that those seven characteristics, which are very positive, are now going to create the right influence for the organization. And if so, then the organization focuses on creating a culture where they have belonging, value, and mutual commitment. So that that's the initial framework uh, that I propose to uh, clients. And that's what I work with when I work with leaders on their, on their cultures. That's great. Well, I, I love that it seems that this mindset is going to also be visible to the client. So in other words, it might help for retaining or having an ideal atmosphere at work with your employees, but it, I would imagine it would translate and, and spill over into what your client sees as well. Absolutely, because it's 100% true that how you treat your employees is how your employees will then treat the consumers and how they will treat others. People are a product of their environment. And it's real important that leaders understand that they create that environment and they're responsible for it. So a couple of reasons why this is so important to organizations. Number one, the cost factor. It costs at least 25% of a person's salary to replace them when they leave. And that's only to replace the organizational intelligence that they take with them. So an individual who has been trained and seasoned maybe two to five years on the job and even more, when they leave, it's 25% of their salary is just to replace the nuances that they know about the company and about working with other people. And sometimes we don't always think of putting a value on it because it doesn't come as a hard cost until we start to replace people. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is on top of your, you know, your cost to acquire the individual and then whatever training you give them from an onboarding experience to orient them to the systems and orient them a little bit to policies, procedures, and some sort of internal structure. So you still have those costs. And then the additional benefit that you receive from from actually doing this, uh, research has proven that when you see an increase in performance of a, of a team, specifically when cohesion is present, up to 50% of that increase of productivity and creativity is actually attributed to the team working cohesively. So there are some real tangible values to this. It's not just fluffy in the sky, you know, oh, well, you know, I know I should treat people well, but guess what? You know, we're really going to focus on the profits of the organization. Because what I will tell you this, that you don't get profits of the organization without people. People interacting with the organization creates profits, not just things interacting with things to create the profits. So really, if an organization can truly have leadership that will embody these three things, they will, number one, create an honest environment where things are authentic and genuine, meaning the values mean something and people will hold to those values. 
when the senior most individuals of the organization support what is going on, that they support and adopt good behaviors that treat people well, that create no harm to individuals. And then lastly, is that when they create an environment that is so easy and refreshing and and just a good experience for individuals that they want to live it, breathe it and own it, then they will be able to make progress. And, And one more thing I would also add too is There's a difference between what is considered correlational data and then what is causal data. In thinking about cohesion, it's real interesting how all of that, you know, comes together. And so if you, if, uh, with your permission, I'd like to do two exercises with you if you're up to it. Sure. Yeah, let's go for it. (laughs) The first thing is, is that sometimes when I talk about cohesion culture, people think, oh my goodness, it's like, you know, it's, I'm going to be the same company as everybody else. And the reality is that's not actually true. So I'm going to start with this question. So first of all, Maria, have you had chocolate cake? Yes. Okay. Have you eaten more than one piece of chocolate cake from different bakers? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. In that, when you've had those chocolate cakes, did they taste exactly the same? No. Great. Now that's a cohesion culture. The three primary elements are belonging, value, and mutual commitment. To make a chocolate cake, aside from the cocoa, you need eggs, flour, and milk. And there's a variety of eggs, a variety of milks options, and a variety of flour that you can now combine to make your chocolate cake. So your chocolate cake will be different, but it will be familiar. It will taste similar. Same thing for a cohesion culture. An organization's practices, their their habits, their you know what they do, their, their customs and rituals, their symbols, stories, they're going to be unique to that company. But if they can work on the strategic framework of ensuring that people don't just fit in, but that they truly belong, that it makes a huge difference for the organization. So that's one thing to make sure that in, anybody who's listening goes, well, good, I'm going to still create my own unique company. I'm not going to you know, just create one standard company. The other thing is now I want to give you a little bit of explanation between correlational and what we call causal data. So correlational data is when you have two items that you correlate a relationship. So you can statistically say that two items are either highly connected or not connected at all. And so that's the results that you get. When you have causal data, you have a variable that causes something else to occur. It's a cause and effect. So let's talk about correlational data, first of all, and then causal, and then we'll determine which of these is a better predictor of behavior. So in correlational, we're going to talk about umbrellas and rainy days. I'm sure it's something you're familiar with. So first of all, on a rainy day, have you opened an umbrella? Yes. Okay. Have there been rainy days when you didn't open an umbrella? Absolutely. Yes. And have you ever gone to the beach? Yes. And do you open an umbrella on the beach to shade you from the sun? I do. Yes. Great. And you may even be one of those individuals who test umbrellas before they buy them. And so therefore there's nothing, you don't even know what's going on outside. You're just testing the umbrella. So that's correlational data. I can create a strong correlation that umbrellas will be used on rainy days, but rainy days do not cause umbrellas to be opened because there are other factors that allow the umbrella to be opened. When we have cohesion, we now have causal. It's what I call the cohesion phenomenon. Because when cohesion is present, that's belonging, value, and mutual commitment, then you have performance. When you have performance, you have it at the level of engagement that you want all along, and you don't have to worry about spending all this time on making people happy and, you know, they will be happy and fulfilled and that's okay. We want all those emotions to occur, but sometimes we view those and think, oh my gosh, we have engaged employees when in fact we don't. To get it, you have to have a causal activity. So cohesion creates performance that leads to engagement. That's the cohesion phenomenon. So now when we work with leaders, 
will say, yes, you do want to, you want to use um, correlational information. You want to, you want to make sure that, yes, these statistics have a relationship and I understand them, but they don't predict each other. So if you want to predict behavior, then you build cohesion into your team and you will be able to determine that based on how that group is performing. If they are performing at a high level, then they have to have cohesion. They cannot perform at a high level and not have cohesion in the organization. So sometimes when you have a disconnect of the performance and, and people are not performing, even when all the data says that you should be, yes, it's because you have a problem inside your organization. And now we need to go in and decide what that problem is so that you can rectify it or at least have an opportunity to correct it if you want. Yeah, that seems like um, a, a really difficult thing to pinpoint. Sometimes when you're in it, it almost seems easier to maybe see it if you're not so much in the situation. So if you're viewing it from the outside, is that a service that you offer as well? As you may already know, I'm a huge fan of selling on Etsy. I've had over 10 years of selling my jewelry and digital cards there. And to be honest, it is by far the easiest platform to navigate. It takes no time at all to list an item with a smartphone. And really, that's how I get most of my products in my shop. To make it easier for you to get started, I'm sharing a link in the show notes for you to open your shop with 40 free listings. That should motivate you to finally take that first step and get your shop online. If you're looking to finally open your store with absolutely nothing to lose, now is the time to try Etsy. Now back to the show. I do. As a matter of fact, I work with organizations to produce what is called a uh, culture survey. And it's an online process. And we can, depending upon the complexity of the company, we can, we provide unique URLs based on individuals. So you can survey individuals of departments, individuals who make up um, a community, maybe several units, and then you can put it all together for an aggregate total of the of the whole culture, but then you can also look at the subsets to determine if there is a factor that's affecting the overall culture of the organization, you might pinpoint the area it is in, and then you have the opportunity to do some additional observations, some additional studies. A lot of a lot of the HR areas that I work with, they already have uh, good strategies and practices, or they have an idea of strategies and practices. What I do is help them make sure that they're working at their optimum, and are they getting everything they want out of it? And I use it, I use a talent retention model that's included in the book that individuals can look at and see fundamentally, here's a picture of how all this stuff should be working. And then you need to have all this working. Sometimes I find that when individuals go to like a conference, they'll bring back their best idea and they want to implement the idea, but it doesn't connect with anything. Mm, So the idea of learning retention model is to ensure that the items connect and that you understand the context and the relationship they have to each other. And then you can put things together, training, coaching, all of those skills that you really need to make sure that are in place for the individual to uh, move the organization forward. Okay. Yeah. Well, that data that you gather must be invaluable to a small business owner because you're not having to do the the painful thing of rehiring and, and dishing out all that money to somebody that you could have maybe just corrected a situation. Yes. And the good news about the data is, uh, and about the process is it also includes in one year, we do I have another opportunity where I go back in and I redo the the uh, survey. And I separate the difference between those individuals who have been there for the year and then those who are brand new. And the reason for that is because you want to have a benchmark. So that first survey we do is the benchmark. Then we put in whatever activities over the course of the year. And it really does take about a year to sometimes really put things in. It might even take two years Okay. Wow. put things in because you're changing behavior and Mm -hmm. don't change behavior overnight. People have set that behavior in place over years. Yeah. And it's so comfortable 
able to bounce back to what you're used to. Yeah. And so the so then once you have put things in place, then you have an opportunity to to see how that has progressed. And then you also get the unique advantage of do, when we do that survey of seeing the new people who have seen all the new things, who do not have the past history, that is not weighing them down, how they are reacting. Because, you know, regardless of the way it works, sometimes first impressions are first impressions. And you have some employees that will never cut you a slack, even if you have changed, because they are so deep rooted in what has happened before that they can't, they can't see the new thing. They're not teachable to see the new thing because they have been so comfortable thinking and there, and there was so much distrust. When you don't have trust, it is your primary dysfunction in an organization. Peter Lencioni talks about that in the five dysfunctions of a team and it starts out with trust. And if you don't have the baseline of trust then all the other dysfunctions are going to be present. Wow. Well, I love that this has been your area of expertise before it was trendy. It sounds like you've been doing this for quite some time. So that's really great. You. Can you tell me a little bit about your book? I sure would love to do that. So the book is called Cohesion Culture, Proven Principles to Retain Your Top Talent. Again, it's divided into three sections so that the individual leadership can actually know what it's like to be a leader. I have a quote that I use in some of my teachings, and it says that you cannot serve the many until you serve the one, which says that as a leader, you have to make sure that you are taking care of yourself first in acquiring good leadership skills so that you're able to properly influence individuals that you work with. And it also, if you unpeel another layer of that quote, then you consider, wow, I have to treat my team individually. So I have to make sure that I'm meeting the needs of the one of the team before I can meet the needs of the many of the team. And then if you look at it from a social perspective, it says that you must see the humanness of the one before you can affect the chain for the many. So again, building all that together. So that first area of the book is on leadership. Then we work with how you build the culture to make sure that the HR strategies and practices that are in place are are starting to be in place from a cultural perspective with values. And it's real important that those values aren't just one-time things said, but you indoctrinate the values into communications. You certainly can put them on the wall of messages. You can send them out, but you need to really incorporate them. And so I teach uh, them how to, to incorporate them into coaching and training activities that can make a difference. And then lastly, it's like, then what are the techniques? That's the putting it all together or bringing it together. And it's what are the techniques and things that you need to have in place that complement both relating and learning? And uh, what do they look like in, in the organization? And many things I try to do is adopt practices that they already have, but maybe they need to be tweaked. Maybe they need to be re-energized. So we rethink, retool and reinvigorate to make it work. So it's not everything starting from scratch, not everything starting from zero. And so that's what the book covers. And I wanted it to be something that, that really said, it's practical that is applicable. Like you could pick up the book and actually put this stuff into place. And I know when you and I spoke before, that's important to your listeners. They don't want to just get a book that gives them all this concept and it doesn't tell them how to do it. In my being genuine and authentic about what I want to do to help others be successful, I couldn't just hint at it in book one and then make them buy three other books before I finally told them something. <laughs> right. I'm like, hey, you know, I'm going to share this right from the beginning and, and put all that information out. So, and then the really great thing that's happened from that, that I'd love to share with your listeners is creating cohesion Culture Camp. It is a interactive online platform that allows individuals 
of an organization to gain more leadership development, more leadership skills. It's a DIY program that goes over a five a module program that is ideally set up for five weeks, but it could be 10 weeks or 15 weeks, depending upon your pacing it. Uh, you have the opportunity to get a camp coach if you would like to, to gain some support in, because conversations that are dynamic help people learn sometimes. Yes, yeah. Um, so it supplements that. And then this program is also available to bring in-house to a company and you can do it for all of your folks inside. We run everything from the online platform and then the conversations that are group led uh, by the instructor are there. I provide a coaching guide for the company so that if they don't want to hire the coach because they said like, look, we spent the money on the online, we'll do the coaching ourselves. I give you a Mm -hmm. coaching, you buy a coaching guide. Coaching guide then allows the individuals within the organization to supplement the conversations that need to be happening. Because the one thing I know for sure is this, if you simply assign training or development opportunities to people and you don't set up their mind before they start, you don't check in with them while they're doing it, and you don't follow up afterwards, you have failed them. You yes. as a leader can just say, you, you just mark the fail, the failed box because you need to give them the reason why this is an important program for them to do. You have to reinforce that everyone in your organization is a leader. If you do, then people will start thinking in that way. You don't wait until you become a leader to think like a leader. You start thinking like a leader right from the very beginning. My mom used to say that you don't act like a job you have, you act like the career you want. So, Right. Um, well, it seems invaluable too to also have the opportunity to grow a little bit more than just reading the book. I learn a lot better through example and through being able to really delve into a, a topic and having been in an organization where you have to do training in my past days, sometimes your employees just want to mark off the you know training's done and they didn't really get that involved with it. So it feels like it's such an integral part to have the camp and the coach. It, it is. And in, in the in doing the, the program, you have videos. You have two hours of instructional videos spread out over the five module program. That's a lot of content and information for people to digest. Then they have opportunity for a recall of the of the material and the information. Then they can work with their leaders to, to really explore some of those those comments and questions. And then it has a great opportunity for organizations because it's it's online maintenance, meaning that when new people come in, you're not starting over again. You don't have to wait for 20 or 30 people to all of a sudden pull a class together and you wait for six or seven months before you can get enough people to do a class and all these bad behaviors and things that may be occurring for those six or seven months, you can include it as part of your onboarding experience from the beginning to get people engaged. And it's really important for this because 63% of all employees want some form of advancement, growth, or development. So it's a very cost-effective way uh, for uh, organizations to be able to do it and to signal that first sign that says, I care about you because I'm going to make this course available to you from day one. Yes. And I think that's important starting from day one. Back in the day when I was working, it seemed like you would have to wait until like, kind of like you said, maybe three or four people were hired and maybe it might be a week or two into it. And already by then you might be discouraged. You might not really be understanding the culture the, the idea of where the, the company is taking you. So I think having that training from the beginning is so important. It, it definitely is. A lot of organizations, I know when people first come in, they spend time on the, on the systems piece. And that's definitely important. People need to know the system, but they have to have some indoctrination to the culture of the organization to really understand that we're serious about it. That yes. it these were not just the words to get you to, to join our organization. We just didn't woo you and then all 
all of a sudden uh, turn you to the wolves, but we actually, you know, bring you along along the way and, and help you out. And it's it shows it's the first way to really create the engaged employee is you invest in them first. I give them every reason to want to achieve not only their own personal goals, dreams, and aspirations, but they will work really hard to achieve the the desired outcomes of the organization. It's right. it's one of the areas of belonging. Like you're when you, you give a piece of your identity. So Maria, I know you belong to groups and and uh, other organizations, and you seek them because you want to be a part of something. Uh, you like what they stand for, and so you involve yourself. And when you do, you give a piece of your identity to that group, and it creates the group identity, the core ID of that of that group. And it's very healthy when you only give a piece of your identity. Certainly, if we were talking about cults, then we would say you would give your full identity, but we're not talking about that. And the two great byproducts that you get from it is, number one, when people give that piece of their identity into the group, um, individuals will really do whatever it takes to keep the group alive. As long as the group is a healthy group, its outcomes are positive and directed in that way, then all the individuals will continue to to sometimes fight to the bitter end. Uh, Even if external forces are attacking the group, they will keep the group in mind. And then the other thing is, then you have people working together to achieve the same goal. You don't have to worry about, well, is somebody trying to work on something else? They know what the, the group is and their group identity continues to guide them. And th- that's the research. It's like, this is human behavior. I'm giving layman's terms to things that have been studied for, for years, for decades, but it's true. It works. So even though it sounds a little conceptual and you're like, I'm not sure how to do it, that's what we would work on through a consulting and coaching arrangement is bringing all that together. And, and so in addition to what I do with organizations uh, as a whole, I work with individual leaders. I have an executive coaching program. I've, I've logged well over 500 hours, actually about 350 hours last year. And especially because we were uh, Zooming, it really um, ended up you know, working really well. And then I have helped create over 100 action plans for leaders to, to help them personally and to help their organizations achieve their desired goals. That's great. Well, what a one step can someone take to start making a shift in, in the way that they're running their organization? So the first thing I tell every client is, Go do your own observation. And this is what you're going to observe. What are the greetings that happen in the organization? Are people connecting to each other? What are they saying when they first see each other? Do you hear laughter within your group? Do you have moments of unexpected fun? And again, in the business world, I'm always speaking of it being appropriate humor, appropriate laughter. Everything is geared to be you know, positive. I'm not talking about making fun of anyone or doing anything that causes someone to feel like they're not belonging. Otherwise, that would you know go against everything I've said so far in the conversation. Uh, and then the last thing is, how are they, and I have to use this carefully because today we practice a little bit more distancing, but it's, what are the handshakes, the fist bumps, the chicken wings? What are the kinds of connections that people are making either virtually when they're connecting or in person or some sort of hybrid. And and so what it is, it's the handshake. And so one of the things that we teach in the Cohesion Culture Camp is that you create a special handshake. And so we give you some options of handshakes that can be done virtually and practice distance. And they can also be when you want to create a touch environment. Uh, so we do that. So that's what I tell folks to do immediately is to do that because that empirical data will start making a difference immediately. Because for instance, if you see that people are coming into work or you know that they're they're clocking in the morning and nobody's talking to each other, they're just sitting at their desk and doing their thing, there's no greetings. And we need that. That human, the human need is to have that we have a bonding activity. So right. one of the suggestions that we recommend to organizations is to do a morning huddle, and to do the morning huddle, about thirty minutes 
it can be 15, 20. So it's just a hard, fast rule. But sometime before the official start time, you actually open up a Zoom call or a, some sort of online platform and you encourage people to get their coffee, to talk to one another, to have, have them ask about how their day was yesterday. It's informal. So there should not, we're not asking for a formal, I mean, you can create formality if you'd like, but this is just really informal, getting to know people. You can play games. We find we have online activities uh, that they can do where, where folks can actually use their their online tools, their online devices, you know, their phones and tablets to be able to connect to a game and they can share in a community game activity that they can do. That's something that's really brings together the group. But sometime you have to, you can go to five after the start time and you should go to five minutes after the start time because you created an informal environment. And so if you have a nine o'clock start time and you start at 830, you don't want to be the boss that goes, oh, it's nine o'clock, let's stop. But at nine or five, you can then bring closure to it and people don't feel like you all of a sudden didn't mean what happened before. Like um, it was just like you were checking off that box again. Where, yeah. yeah. Okay. And so you can do that. The other thing we recommend is that you create um, online lunches where individuals um, have prepare their lunch and they come to a visual online experience and actually eat together. Uh, we know that's important because we create our values based on the use of our senses. Many of us can have memories and recall things that have mattered to us, such as the music that was playing, the food that we ate, what somebody looked like, the sound of their voice, how they smelled. All of those things create our experiences that create value for us. So you can do that. And then the third activity is something we call a, a daily debrief. And you do those and those are, you know, 10 minutes, five minutes, and they're just a check-in. They can be group and they can be individual. You have to have some variety between them. And the reason for that is there's a study by um, Harvard business professors, uh, Amiable and Kramer, and it's called the power of small wins. And they talk about feeding the inner life, the inner soul of the employee. And what their research uh, proved is that how the employee feels when they leave at the end of the day is most likely how they will start the next day. Mm, and, that's interesting. Yeah. So it gives you, so those are three things that I would just offer to you practically in addition to the other things I've mentioned that, that uh, your listeners can do. Those are great tips. Where can we connect with you and find your book? Well, the easiest way is to go to my website, which is D. DrTroyHall.com. You can also connect with me through a connect form at CohesionCultureCamp.com, and that'll take you right to the connect form. And then you can give me your information, and I'll reach back out to you. That that will come to me in an email form. The, the book is available on Amazon, and you can also just go and search Cohesion Culture. We were blessed enough that that particular uh, book is a best-selling title. It's still being sold today. We've distributed over five thousand copies of that book worldwide, and we're really excited about it because you think that five. You go 5,000, you go, yeah, what is that? But if you notice less than, for all new books that are created, less than 100 books are actually distributed on all new books that are created. So oh, wow. to hit that number resonates with people. It, it says something. And uh, and then I'm real excited uh, to be able to, to kind of close up maybe with our conversation to say the third book that I'm releasing is Fanny Rules. Nine Lessons Behind the Making of a Leader. And it pays uh, a tribute to my mother's legacy in teaching me about leadership. Um, oh, that's beautiful. That's yeah. awesome. I create um, teachable moment stories, the stories of interactions with my mom, and I use them as real life practical examples. And the entire book is a mentoring guide. So when you get to the end of each of the rules, there aren't chapters because they're called rules. But when you get to the end of the section, uh, then it gives you a recap of the teachable moment. And then there's a series of questions that you can use for self-reflection 
or questions you can use if you engage between a mentor and a mentee. It was a great way for me to remember mom. So when I was 12 years old, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I, being the oldest at home at the time, was my responsibility to take care of mom. So for the entire summer that I was nurturing mom back to health, while my dad, who was in the picture, but dad was the protector and provider, and he had to to actually work. And so I was the one. And so mom chose to define her life by making sure that I knew things that would have maybe gone unsaid. She used every ounce of strength during that time to embody this one particular concept to me. And she said that my character would always be defined by my choices, not my circumstances. The circumstance that I have cancer will not stop me from making the choice of character to ensure that I teach you the information that you need to know. Wow. She sounds amazing. She was an amazing woman. And so I share a little bit about that in our journey and what that time is like in in the book and uh, self-reflection. I would love it for your listeners to get that. I'll make sure I reach back out to you. So absolutely. Maybe we can do another session where I just talk about my my mom's nickname was Fanny. And so I'm not going to share much. Listen, you know, you got to tease people a little bit to read the book. I told you some information. Her nickname was Fanny. I tell you how she got the nickname in the book. And then one of, and my, my brother was, who's three years younger than me. He said, he says, hey, you're doing this great thing for mom. He says, but don't leave dad out. And I said, no, I won't. So um, one of the chapters is called uh, Step Ladders, Space Pants, and Honking Horns. And uh, the Space Pants story is uh, in honor of my dad. Oh, how cute. I love it. <laughs> yes, we'll definitely have you back. Great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Troy. It's been fun talking with you and learning all about a very difficult topic. Thank you. I'm so happy to share that with your listeners. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Well, there you have it, my friend. Another incredible CEO making an impactful change in the world. After my interview with Dr. Troy, I realized that a lot of the previous jobs that I had as a teenager missed the mark on so many levels. But it's exciting to know that each and every business has the tools available to them to make their business a cohesive culture environment. Be sure to check the show notes to connect with Dr. Troy and to buy his book on Amazon. I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to the Handmade CEO podcast. Don't forget to check the show notes to get a glimpse of today's featured guest and special offers. If you love the show, leave a review and share this episode with a friend. Thanks for tuning in. Now it's your turn to start handcrafting your dream job. 